Turn your Bibles to the text for this morning's message, Romans chapter 12. Let's stand together as we read the text. Romans chapter 12, we're going to begin in verse 14, and I want you to look where we are and I want you to hear. Listen to the scriptures that have come up for this time of preaching right here and right now. These scriptures we will be spending time with for the next few weeks. Don't tell me the Bible is not relevant. Romans chapter 12, verse 17, or excuse me, verse 14. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men, and if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink, for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Let's bow our heads. Father, we come before you this morning. We are thankful for the time together, thankful for this time of preaching. Please help us to have open, eye, uh, open hearts and open minds, open ears as we look together in your word and bring it to bear on what we are facing, Lord. Help us to be faithful to you above all, faithful to your truth. I ask now that you would lead and guide, help us to... Be receptive to your truth. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So you heard that, right? That's like a boom, mic drop for the Bible. Like, you wanna, want me to talk about what's going on right here, right now? Boom. There we go. Because it just addressed pretty much everything we are facing or we will be facing. And that's exactly why I preach in what is called an expository manner. All that means is I move verse by verse through the Bible. I don't hop from topic to topic. I try the best to give the meaning of the Bible in the light of the book and in light of the whole of Scripture. And I take my time. You can say amen to that. We've been in Romans for like three years now. I don't rush through things. But I also believe that through this manner of preaching... The topics come up by themselves when they are needed. And here we are, right here and right now. I don't know if these messages would have been the same a year ago. 
A year ago, we were finishing up a series through the book of Daniel. The hot topic of the day, of course, was COVID, but the closing of churches. Remember that? We, are dealing, we were dealing with much of the same things today. We had the forced lockdowns and the forced closures and call them for what they are. Quarantine is only for the sick. It's not for the healthy. We were not in quarantine. We were in lockdown. We were dealing with that and what do we do as a church and pushing back against that. And that was going on instead of two weeks, it had been going on at that time for five months. And we were being told that everyone around us was just about dying. And so the dictators of the land, drunk with power, had closed down just about everything, including churches and We were talking about those who all too willingly complied. And there was still an element of fear and uneasiness about the situation. We weren't sure exactly what was going on, but things were starting to get clearer. And here we are a year later, and it seems like we're going back down that same path. Well, this time things are a little bit different. I think it's rather clear we were lied to. The numbers that drove everything, remember, it's all about the numbers. We do this because of the numbers. The numbers we found out weren't exactly true, now were they? The numbers that drove everything were a lie. But yet we're supposed to trust the same guy in everything he says? No. We're finding our freedoms again are being infringed on in the name of greater good. Right now, the hot-button issues are vaccination mandates. That seems to be what's coming down the line, and they're looming and even being rolled out as we speak in the healthcare industry and probably soon for the schools and maybe even private employers. Let me just be clear on this, as it's probably going to come up because it's a hot-button issue. Let me make myself clear. I do not think... The vaccine or the shot is evil. I have zero problem with those who choose to get it. You understand that? I want that to be clear. If you want it, get it. Praise God. I don't have a problem with it. Go for it. (laughs) As for me, I probably won't because I never got a flu shot in the beginning. And it's just me. I don't want it. I'm a firm believer, and take this for what it's worth, I die when God says I do. No shot changes that. There is a time to be born and a time to die. God knows that time. And when He says, come home, guess what? I go home. I don't say that to make any statement other than that's what I feel. My problem is when the government begins to mandate what I must inject to my bo- inject in my body against my will. Make sense? So I'm not trying to make any statement about that as I don't like them telling me something that goes against my personal God-given liberty. And if this does come to pass, well, that just paves the way for some things in Revelation, now, doesn't it? Which, by the way, is not always a bad thing. That means Jesus is coming sooner. 
But we are facing these kinds of things now, and we have questions. How much should we obey? What do we do in the face of evil? Because either we're standing on the brink of a repeat of the revolution of 1776, or we're standing on the brink of Revelation chapter 6. So, I think it's good to ask questions. And we're going to look at this passage and see how it comes to bear on right now. As you can imagine, as I've spent time with these verses specifically phrases like repay no man evil for evil bless those who curse you be not overcome of evil overcome it with good and be subject to the higher powers phrases like that questions begin to come it's brought up a lot more topics than i originally thought i thought well you just make some simple statements boom 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 and then we're good well Sometimes, what's usually the case when you meditate on Scripture is you begin to think of how it applies across the board. And I would encourage you to do that. Your daily Bible reading, if you're trying to cram in five chapters and you never think about those five chapters, then stop and do one verse and think about one verse. Meditate on it. What does this mean for my life? How, how, why is this in the Bible? What is the Lord trying to tell me? When you do that, you find... Uh, it begins to broaden in its application. And I think there is depth here in Romans 12 and 13. Because at first glance, it seems like simple. Don't treat people bad who treat you badly, right? Bless those who persecute you. Don't give evil for evil. But you begin to spend time like that and questions begin to come. Like, is this in all circumstances? In all situations that we'll face, is that what I'm supposed to do? Am I supposed to obey the government no matter what? Because I have some questions, and I don't think I'm the only one. Questions like, what about when people seek to do us bodily harm? Does these, do these passages rule out self-defense? Or, what do we do with 1776 or 1944 and 45 or 2001 when we as a nation rose up against evil to put it down? Are those enormous, deliberate acts of disobedience to the Scripture? Was all that wrong? Because we're not supposed to do that. Right? Bless those who persecute you. See where my thinking goes? Does this apply at all times? Should we have any part of the defense of the nation? What about fighting the evil in society? To what length do we obey the government? Do we have the right to stand up against it? And I think these questions are valid and it's good to address them from time to time because some of this I have yet to address from the pulpit. At first glance, it seems as if Paul is saying just roll over and let people do whatever they want. But I don't think that's what he's saying. So let's spend some time with that. And I do want to give you some warning. These next couple messages, maybe just today, they're going to be a little bit different. A little different from the norm. They're more informative, more on the teaching side, which is still part of my calling. Technically, I'm a pastor teacher if we go along with what Ephesians chapter 4, I believe it is, says. What I want to do is set some framework and foundations for what this means. So when we come at it and we preach, hey, look, bless those who persecute you. Here's what Paul's talking about. I want to set some framework and answer some questions along with some things that Jesus himself says that is used in this. How should this be applied in our life? What is he exactly talking? So stick with me and we'll let the Lord lead in this. And I want you 
I want to start by reminding you that we are called to radically different thinking, aren't we? We are called to be Christ-like. That's why I started this study on this passage with setting up Christ and how He dealt with direct persecution against Him. What Paul is going to call us to and what he's talking about here is not humanly natural. We want vengeance. We want revenge against somebody who personally wrongs us. Christ did not do that, did He? At the very core, we're to have the same attitude and love that He did, even for those people that may hate us. But we also must remember there's a difference between societal wrongs, wrongs in society, and personal wrongs, wrongs done against us. There's a difference. There's a difference with fighting with evil ideals and engaging the people who hold to those ideals. Make sense? There is individual liberties, and the defense of those individual God-given liberties is different from acting out personal revenge or personal vengeance. This is the realm we're talking in and that Paul is working in. And there is a whole sermon coming on what we do with religious persecution. Okay, Kind of giving you some framework to look ahead. So I want to consider a few of these things. I don't think it's chasing rabbits. I think it needs to be talked about. We need to understand where we rest on this. So let's work around with the thought of these phrases that Paul uses. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Or in verse... Um, 17, recompense to no man evil for evil. What's he mean? How does that apply? Let's explore that. First stop I want to make is self-defense. Is what Paul's saying here is to let anybody do to you what they want. Does this rule out self-defense? Is it a sinful thing to protect your family and your loved ones from someone seeking to take your life or do serious bodily harm, and not for a specific religious reason, as, as in deny Christ or I take your life. Because that happens all the time. People steal and murder, and home invasion is a real thing. It's a world we live in that has been wrecked by sin. This happens. What do we do? Is it sinful? And fleshly, for me, because some people would hear this and would drive them crazy mad, for me to say as a pastor, anyone that seeks to break into my house and to harm my family will become intimately familiar with the business end of a double-barrel 12-gauge. <laughs> Is that sinful for me to say that? Because there are some Christians who think it is. Anybody know who Charlton Heston is? Oh, wow. So that joke would have worked. I was going to say, didn't Moses himself say, take this from my cold, de cold dead hands? <laughs> but see, I don't do jokes. So I just, we'll let that one fly. Is it a biblical principle to defend your family? Because again, or, or do, we just, do we just say nothing and let whatever happens get to happen? Is self-defense a biblical statute? And I understand there are a variety of opinions on this subject, and I just feel it's a good time to address them in accordance with Scripture. There are some who lay on the extreme pacifism side, that the Christian should not own any sort of 
any form of weapon, nor engage of any kind of violent act, ever. That includes self-defense, that includes participating in the armed forces or police forces. They say things like, it's all in God's hands and He will defend it, just have faith. And they take an extreme stand against any of that. My goal is not to disprove or dissuade anyone, but I want you to know that is out there, and I simply want to see what does the Bible say. Because they'll use verses like this to support it. Repay no man evil for evil. So, if he wants to hurt you, that's evil on his part, and it would be evil on your part to do the same back to him, to the thief breaking in the house. And whether it's on a personal level or on a national level, the Christian should have no part at that. So what does the Bible say? Because in the end, that's the rule, isn't it? Exodus chapter 20. Turn there. We're going to look at a few passages. These are... I usually preach from six pages of notes, just to give you an idea. These messages were massive, like 10 and 20. So we'll get through what we can get through, but I don't want to hurry either. I don't know if you've ever heard a message on self-defense. Well, this can be a first, and let's see what the Bible has to say, because we're living in a time where some of this is on our minds. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Thou shalt not kill. Whoop, there you go. Done, right? Don't kill, ever. People use that. Now, just hold up, because i got a question. Does that forbid all killing, especially if you're using the King James? I understand. Just give me a second. I'll work to, to, to what it means. But if you use the King James and you see that, thou shalt not kill, well, you can't kill ever. Well, how far are we going to take that? Does that mean you can't kill something to eat it? And God would be out of line calling for animal sacrifices in His worship to point to Christ. God would be out of line when He establishes capital punishment if this really means do not ever kill. Well, you should know better by now what that word kill means. You probably heard it by faithful pastors explaining the word to you or you using a strong concordance in your studies or even modern Bible translations that use the word for what it means. It means murder. That is the meaning. Thou shalt not murder. To slay, to, to the premeditated and deliberate taking of another human life is forbidden by God and His Word. And do you understand? That's why murder is illegal in most, if not all, countries on the face of this earth. Because of the Bible. Because of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> That's why it's sad when we see communities taking them out from the courthouses because the courthouses whether they know it or not, are built on the very commandments of God, like this. Don't murder. It's wrong. And by the way, God have mercy. God have mercy on us because we legalize the murder of babies. You wonder why things are going sideways. Maybe that's part of the reason. We as a nation have said it's okay to go against this commandment, and not only that, in the worst way possible. 
But these things have been understood from the giving of commandments. Self-defense is not the premeditated taking of another one's life. I love to look into old commentaries to see historical understandings. Matthew Henry writes this in 1706 about this verse. It does not forbid killing in lawful war or in our own necessary defense or the magistrates putting offenders to death for those things actually tend to the preserving of life. He says, no, it doesn't mean you don't kill ever. There are some situations when taking a life preserves life. I simply quote that to show the historical understanding of that verse, which liberal Christianity seeks to define. These new pastors with their tight jeans and all that goes along with it stand up there and say, we shouldn't do anything to hurt a fly. We should all be vegan. All this stuff that's going on is getting in our kids' heads. It's what they're teaching this new generation of people. That's not a historical understanding of the Bible. We need to know what it means to stand for it. Look, Exodus 22. Let's go 50 verses. Let's just go 50 verses deeper into the law and see what God says. Exodus chapter 22 and verse 2. If a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die... There shall, no be, there shall be no blood shed for him. Verse 3, If the sun be risen on him, there shall be blood shed for him, for he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. This, beloved, is a specific law given on home invasion and defense. If the thief breaks in at night and the homeowner took defensive measures that resulted in the loss of the thief's life, they are not guilty of murder. God is laying the grounds for self-defense in this instance to be justifiable. And what about that day verse? Verse 3. Does that mean if someone breaks in the day, breaks in in the day, you do nothing? No, that's not what he's talking about. During the night, motive is not known. Someone's coming in your house, you're not going to say, Excuse me, sir, what doest thou? <laughs> Can I help you? No, you're going to assume the worst. And God knows that, God understands, that's why he says that. But in the day, isn't there a greater chance that they can be caught or dissuaded or handed over to the authorities? That's exactly what he's talking about. Self-defense is in the Bible, and it's in the law, given by God Himself. Nehemiah chapter 4, you don't have time to turn there, but Nehemiah chapter 4, awesome portion of Scripture. The Israelites have come back from captivity, they're working to rebuild the law, and they arm themselves to defend against nations that want to stop it. Nehemiah chapter 4, listen to what it says. But it came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites that's all the nations around them that hate Israel. They heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and the breaches began to be stopped. They were very angry and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. That's evil intent, right? Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. Well, a lot of Christians would stop there and say, well, just pray about it. 
And they did. We made our prayer to God. Just pray about it. God will take care of the rest. Well, prayer is mighty. Prayer is powerful. And so is common sense. Because here's what Nehemiah says. Therefore set I in the lower places behind the wall, and on the higher places I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And he tells them, you build with one hand, you build with a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. You want to break it down to uh, modern vernacular? I put people in their places with their handguns, their long guns, and their scatter guns. They're holding weapons, doing the work of God. And he says, I said to the nobles, to the rulers, to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And God doesn't come down from heaven and say, hold on there, Yosemite Sam. Just chill with all this weapon talk. What are you doing? No. In fact, he blesses the building of the wall and he, pro he protects the people who have been prepared if anything should happen. God doesn't come down and say, put those weapons down. What are you doing? No, he doesn't call it out. Doesn't say anything about it. Proverbs 25 and 26 says, A righteous man falling down before the wicked is as a troubled fountain in a corrupt spring. On and on the examples go. We see it throughout Scripture. Well, then here's where people want to flip the switch. Well, that's the Old Testament. That's in the old days. God was a meanie back then. And He wasn't very nice. And Jesus said, no. Jesus said, turn the other cheek and give Him your coat. First question, is that really what he's talking about there? Because you probably should do some reading in context about what Jesus is talking about. We'll get to that passage. And we'll spend time there. But Jesus also said a couple of other things that shed some light. Make your way to the book of Luke, chapter 22. As we're going there, let me stop in Luke 11. And Jesus, Jesus loved to use illustrations that people could understand, right? That's what a parable is about. That's what the soils are about, the, the good ground, the hard ground, the thorny ground, all that. He, he looks around them with things that would be easily understood, and he, he applies a scriptural principle. He does that with something that he doesn't call out. I, I, just listen to what he says in Luke 11 and where did, where is it at? 21. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace... His goods are in peace. When a man of the house is armed, guarding his palace, his goods are in peace. He didn't say, and by the way, this is sinful. No, he uses a, a common sense illustration that everybody would have understood. In fact, he's using that about himself and, and him coming up and breaking up Satan's house by throwing out all the demons, right? But all that to say, he doesn't call it out and say that's sinful. He uses something they could understand. But Luke 22, you're there in that passage of Scripture. Look in verse 35. Luke 22 and 35. And he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said, Nothing. Now check it out. Then he said to them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, likewise his scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garments and buy one. 
For I say unto you that this is written, must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the thing concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said, it is enough. (laughs) Yeah, Jesus just told his church to go buy a sword. (laughs) Told his disciples to go buy weapons. Well, if he's so anti-weapon, why would he say something like that? If you bring that again into today's vernacular, he just said, go sell something and buy a gun. So you could tell your wife when she asks next time, honey, Jesus told me to. It's okay that we buy one and quarter this verse. See if that works and let me know. (laughs) He tells them to buy a sword in case they needed a defense. What do you do with those kinds of verses if you believe we should never own anything like that? Well, go to Matthew chapter 26. Because this happens right before another passage of Scripture that people use to say we should not. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 51. This, the passage we just read happens. Then this takes place just moments later. And behold, one of them, Peter, is Peter, we know it's Peter, Behold one of them, 26 and 51 of Matthew. Behold one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck off the high priest, struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. By the way, he wasn't aiming for the ear, he's just bad aim. Verse 53, Jesus said unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. You probably have heard these verses if you've read anything about why we shouldn't own guns, why we shouldn't uh, be part of the army or part of the police. You've probably heard these. Put your sword into his place, for they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But but how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it thus must be? Peter gets his sword out after the Lord just told him it would be a good idea for having, and he uses it, he tries to use it. And what does he say? Drop that sword. Don't ever pick it up again. Throw it far away from you. What are you doing with that? How could you, Peter? Where did you get that blasted idea that you should have a sword? No, he didn't say that, did he? He says, put it back. Not now. That's what he says. Not now, because this time it is not needed, which is important. He says, no, this must happen. Stand aside this time. He doesn't doesn't nullify all self-defense, doesn't nullify all kinds of weapon-owning. He just says, Peter, chill. Not right now. Not right now. And there will be a time, beloved, when we will drop weapons because we know it's time. We know it's time to lay our life down for the sake of the gospel. And we'll get to that. But all that to say, I believe self-defense is a scriptural principle. It's not a sin to defend your family. It's not a sin to defend your house. Which leads to my next question, and we'll spend the time that we, the remaining time we got left on this. Okay, so if it's not sinful to defend myself from, from someone who would do evil to my family in my house, I see that there's provision for it in Scripture. Not that I'm going looking for... Trouble and challenging everybody to a duel. No, that's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about somebody who would 
come into my house and do evil. It's not sinful to do that. What about those who defend others from evil? What about the armed forces? What about the police? Should a Christian be part of or support the armed forces that defend this country? They would seek to do us evil. And there are times when we have to rise up and take life as a nation, take life as an army to protect the lives of those within our nation. We've seen that happen over history, right? Whether it's the Revolutionary War or World War I or World War II, there were many, many lives lost during World War II. But there was a Egregious evil defeated, wasn't there? A nasty evil defeated. Was that wrong scripturally? If Paul is really saying, anybody who wants to do you evil, it's evil to give back. What do we do with those? Again, I understand there are varied opinions on this. You know that at the, during the Revolutionary War, there were groups, religious groups, that refused to participate in the war and to take up arms for religious reasons. Uh, I believe there were groups like the Quakers, the Mennonites, the Brethren, others, people like that, did not take up arms. Saying that we should have faith in God to protect us and He would work things out. Should we feel the same? Well, for time's sake... If you're taking notes, write some of these scriptures down and maybe go back and read them. Genesis chapter 14. Abraham makes an army. The king of Sodom, and in, in, I think it was the king of Gomorrah too, they, they, they get in a war between themselves and Lot, his nephew, is captured. Well, what does army do? Uh, what does Abraham do? Does he tear his clothes and sackcloth and ashes and sit down and pray? No. He gets together men from his household, about 300 trained men, armed men, and he goes and he gets a lot and brings them home. And then he gives praises to God for it. Thank you, Lord, for all of this. He has faith that God's going to protect him, and he does something about it. And then gives glory to God for his action in Abraham's action. Make sense? That's Genesis 14. David, who is a man of war, is also... A man after God's own heart, is he not? David conquers Philistines. David conquers Goliath. David takes a part in protecting his nation. And his army protects God's people. And it says that David is a man after God's own heart. Well, if God hated that so much, why would he say that about him? Psalm 144 and verse 1, David uh, writes this, Blessed be the Lord my strength which teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight. Nehemiah had an army. We just read that, didn't we? Nehemiah had an army of defense. You're in the book of Luke still, right? No, you're in Matthew. Go to Luke chapter 3. Ecclesiastes, as you're turning there, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 9 and verse 12 says this, Two are better than one. If one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. That actually echoes a lot of things that are said in the law. One that comes to mind, I think, is in Deuteronomy chapter 22. This is if there's a maiden uh, in a field and a man overtakes her to lie with her. Um, of course, he's going to be put to death, but there's a phrase used, and there was no one there to help her. There was no one there to help her. 
Should we not be there to help each other? Should there not be helpers who try to stem the evil in society, as do our armed forces, as do our police officers? That's, again, a principle in a law. It's a principle that runs through Scripture. Luke chapter 3. You're there? we got to get scooting. Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist. Oh, man, if anybody's out of line, he's going to call him out, right? John the Baptist don't care. I think we need some more prophets like that. Stand out there and call some people out. And <laughs> John the Baptist is awesome. You, you, know, you know what he does. You know what he does to the uh, Pharisees. Chapter 3, verse 7. He says to the multitude that came to be, forth of, to be baptized him, Great to see you. Come on down. Oh, this is so wonderful. Now, what does he say? You generation of vipers. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warned? What are you doing here, you bunch of snakes? Of course, he's not necessarily talking to the multitudes. I think he's talking to the Pharisees. You're not the exact nice, warm, and fuzzy guy we want most pastors to be now, right? Now he calls them out. I want you to notice in verse 14 what he says. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, What shall we do? Now stop there. If there's a problem, John's going to tell him. We got no doubt about that. John's going to tell him if there's a problem. But what does he say? Do no violence or no extortion. Do no violence to do violence to no man. Neither accuse any falsely and be content with your wages. They would have a, they would do shakedowns. That's literally what the word means to shake to get money from. That's what they would do. They go from house to house. Hey, we're here. I'm the the muscle. I'm the police, I'm the army, shake them down, get some money going. He says, stop doing that. He didn't say stop being a soldier. Maybe I'm thinking too simplistic, but if it was a problem, John would have told him. Like, hey, repent for being a soldier. No, he says, do it right. Keep doing what you're doing, just do it right. In fact, and we'll close with this kind of thought, there's something pretty interesting to notice we meet quite a few soldiers in Scripture, don't we? Centurions. You know what a centurion is? It's a command over a hundred, right? I have a tendency to blank on these things. It's a man who has a, a, a command of a hundred people under him in the Roman army. We meet a lot of them in Scripture. And you know what? It's always favorably. It's always favorably. Matt, go to Luke chapter 10, a couple pages over in your Bible. Matthew records this same uh, encounter in Matthew chapter 8, I believe. Luke chapter 7 records it. Now, if, if this was really that bad, because Jesus, oh, let me back up. Jesus would always call out sin, right? And he had little to no patience with the Pharisees. Every time he saw him, he's calling them out, right? Like, stop, stop being self-righteous. Like Nicodemus, oh, you're so good at what you do. You need to be born again. He skirts around and gets to the issue. He's got no patience for that. Same with John the Baptist. They're calling out people. He tells the Pharisees most often to stop being self-righteous to change their hearts. If being part of the armed forces was as bad as some people say, you think Jesus would call it out immediately. You think John the Baptist would call it out immediately say, stop, you're sinning. Notice, 
chapter 7, verse 1. We'll, we'll kind of skim through this in the interest of time, but you get the point. Now, when he had ended all his sayings, verse 1, the, uh, in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick, ready to die. When he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come to heal a servant. When they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, he has built us a synagogue. This is a man who is in control of the Roman army who is being uh, loving towards Israel. They say it of him. We respect him. He's a good man. He loves our nation. Jesus Verse 6, went with him. He was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come to thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I am also a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Huh. <laughs> Back that up. Don't read that too fast. Jesus did what? Marveled. God is taken back with the faith of this man. God steps back and says, Wow! Wow! He marveled at him and turned him about and said to the people that followed him, I say to you, I have not found so great a faith. No, not in Israel. That's a pretty good report. And they were sent, they returned, the servant is healed. That's a pretty favorable report. When Jesus said about a servant, wow, I have not seen anybody that has this faith, not even in all of Israel. He didn't call him out, but he said that he had faith. The next centurion we meet is at the cross. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record him as saying things like, this was an innocent man, behold, this was the Son of God. Acts chapter 10, go there. This will be the last passage we go to. I just want you to see this. Hopefully this is all clear and making sense on what I would like it to, what I prayer, my prayer is that it would. Acts chapter 10. Here's another centurion we meet. Verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. And he was an evil man because he was in the army and he had to take life. And God hated him. Is that what the scripture says? Verse 2, A devout man, one that feared God with all his house and gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying to him, Cornelius. When he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? He said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial. Come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa, call for Peter, verse 6, um, verse 7. When the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Cornelius is not told by the angel, hey, you're a good guy, but you've got to stop doing your vocation because it's evil. You are a purveyor of death and destruction and God hates you. No, he's called, he's called devout and he's heard by God. God sends him a message to say, hey, I've heard your prayers. 
I see what you're doing. You're doing good. Now go send for Peter. And by the way, Cornelius immediately is obedient and he receives great blessings because Peter comes to his house. He's a worshiper of God whose prayers are heard and he is an army official. All this to say, by the way, the Roman army would have been the police force at the time too. Let me, I should have made that clear. All that to say, being part of the armed forces is not painted as evil. In fact, they're portrayed as faithful people, believers even. And the army soldier is a favorite illustration of Paul. 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says we're in a warfare and he uses the example of being a good soldier. Ephesians chapter 6, again, we're in spiritual warfare and he uses the armor of the soldier to portray scriptural Spiritual armor, right? All this points me in the direction to say that it is not wrong. It is not wrong to be part of a force or a group of people that defend, her na- defend this nation or her people. Because quite frankly, I believe there are some wonderful blessings to defend. And those who do it are worthy of honor. I believe it is a noble thing. I am thankful for those that do. I believe it's a noble thing. I believe it was a noble thing when everyday men and women like you and me rose up against tyranny and oppression and evil to defend our God-given rights and liberties and to forge a new nation. And that it would not be wrong if we had to do that again. I believe it's noble and I am thankful when we have risen against the evils of the world to defend the helpless and the innocent. because we have some God-given rights and God-given liberties. All that to kind of set the stage for next week. So it's not wrong to defend my family. It's not wrong, biblically, to defend others. What about our citizenship? What about our rights? Do we defend against evil that would take those away, even when it may be those who are governing the nation. We also will dive in to see exactly what Paul is talking about here. What is Paul getting at? What what situations does Romans chapter 12 apply to my life? What Jesus meant when he speaks of these things. And then we'll set the stage for chapter 13 and this burning question, do we obey an evil government? I know it's been a bit out of the ordinary, probably not a message that you're used to, but I think it's good to take a couple Sunday mornings and discuss these things and make it clear, at least where I stand, and I think we're all in agreement as long as we stand on what the Bible says, right? So self-defense is okay. Being part of the armed forces, being part of the police forces is okay, biblically. It's a good thing. It's a righteous thing. So, like I said, we'll take a next step next week and how, what lengths do I go to to defend my personal liberties and things of that nature. I pray it was helpful. Let's close in prayer. Father, I ask you to take these words that have been spoken about very simple practical issues, Lord, and you would help us to stand firmly on them. We thank you for your freedoms and liberties that you've given us and the instruction you've given us in Scripture. Help us to uh, be thankful for those 
who stand and defend us and defend the defenseless, Lord. I just, again, thank you for all that you've done. Thank you ultimately for Christ and all that he has done for us, Lord. As you take this message and use it as you see fit, I ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen.